Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. If you're a seeker, don't miss the inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening, Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work chronicles shamanic counselor and indigenously trained dream decoder, Sandra Cochran's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers throughout the Americas. Sandy's initiations across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt, combined with her knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth, influence her dream blog and workshops. Sandy offers private readings, Sacred International Journeys, a meditative CD, and her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate your earthwalk and create a deeper connection to yourself. Find this and more at her website, starwalkervisions.com. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Good evening. This is truly a different perspective, and I really am the host, Kevin Randall. I'm going to be joined in just a few moments by Paul Kimball, who is a uh, Canadian film and television producer, a writer, and a director whose products include several documentary films on UFOs. I'm not sure how much of this biography I should go into because it's quite long and extensive, and I understand Paul has 
changing his direction now and becoming a politician. So maybe this is all passe. Uh, I will say that he's done an awful lot of TV work. He's done a hosted TV shows. He's hosted a blog or a podcast. Uh, and he believes that the paranormal is actually our interaction with advanced non-human intelligence who may be pulling things out of our own minds and presenting it back to us in ways that we will understand at some point. Anyway, I'm going to kind of jump uh, uh, over the uh, bio here and just say, hi, Paul, how's it going? Hi, Kevin. Um, good. Two things. One, the um, I, in terms of my belief, I actually posit that as a theory. Now that I'm a politician, I have to be careful about saying I believe in paranormal things. Um, you never know. People will use that stuff against you. They have. They've used it against me last year. Um, and the other thing is, and this won't really make a whole lot of sense, or most people listening probably won't care, and that's probably a good thing. But this is the first time you and I have talked in quite some time. And uh, now that I am sort of a politician, one of the things that I, I, I really believe in is owning up to your mistakes. So now that I have you here in person, I want to apologize to you in person um, for our little contretemps. You and I had a a dispute of falling out during the Roswell slides mess of all the things to fight about that. Anyway, totally my fault. I released a confidential email that you had sent to me and uh, it's taken me far too long to in person apologize to you. I just wanted to say what I did was wrong. Looking back on it now, I can't believe I did it. And uh, I hope you accept my apology. Well, looking at back on it now, I can't believe you did it either. No, just <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, that's not a problem, Paul. Of course, I accept your apology. I think the whole Roswell thing's gotten a, a lot of people's minds in different ways. And I truly was on the periphery of it. I really didn't have a hand in the investigation of the Roswell slides. Otherwise, I think things might have gone a little bit differently. Because I would have uh, raised a few red flags when they came up. But I was being fed information from uh, Tony Bagalia about what was going on. And that was why I had some inside information. But I really wasn't a part of that investigation. But that's all water under the bridge. So we'll move cool. on. We'll move on. I've, al yeah, yes, I've, always felt, I've always felt bad about that. And, um, you know, not as bad as I, I would hope they feel about the whole Roswell Slides fiasco. But, uh, I, you know, that's, I'll leave it up to the Roswell Slides promoters to engage in their own journey of self-awareness in terms of, of how that all went down. I am absolutely stunned that Tom Carey would have been dragged into that thing the way he was. I thought he was a little bit uh, more alert on that, but I think his belief structure got in his way, and he just thought here is the absolute evidence that proves that uh, aliens are visiting Earth, and, and by extension, uh, Roswell was an alien visitation, and he just overlook some things that I, I think in the past he would have been more careful about. I, I'm just kind of appalled that he got sucked in the way he is, but that's his problem and not mine. Yeah, it ha as you know, it happens to a lot of people. Look, um, Stan Friedman's my uncle, as a lot of people know. He and I agree on some things, and, and I love Stan, and I assume he still tolerates me. But on Majestic 12, for instance, the same sort of thing, I believe, happened to Stan, that his belief system led him down a path that, you know, he's never coming back from that path. He's never going to change his mind about Majestic 12. And a lot of that has to do, as, as you've written, as I've talked about in the past, in that it, it came along and it confirmed 
a story that he was already telling. And you can either um, walk away from that or you can go further down the rabbit hole. And in that case, I think he went further down the rabbit hole, even as a, as most other people step back and said, that's too far. So, you know, it can happen to the best of us. Um, there's a difference in motivation between somebody who genuinely believes something, even for the wrong reasons, and people who are hucksters. And the Roswell slides had a bit of both. So, you know, that's kind of the way it goes in ufology, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think too often the belief structure gets in the way of what people think and, and what people come to believe. They're just so keyed on their own belief structure that it kind of gets in their way. We're going to have to take our first break here real quick. I'm with Paul Kimball, who is at www.winterlightproductions.com and www.paulandrewkimball.com. And we will be back right after this. Network broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN TV. For more information on the X Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Mnemology Science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Mnemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today. Know the name, know the person. Or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere, Florida. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine such as hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a Southern Flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining rooms can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. 
While you visit, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic downtown Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, Old Florida cuisine at its best. And as promised, we are back. I'm with Paul Kimball. We were talking briefly about the Roswell slides and that sort of thing. And I think we just kind of beat that into the ground. So we'll move on from there. Unless Paul has something he wants to say about it that well, we haven't really talked about. Two things. One, I like your phrase, the Roswell not slides. So <clears throat> you should trademark that. And two, aren't we moving on from Roswell? If I, if I read your email right, now we're going to talk about Oak Island, which... If you could find one thing that might be more ludicrous than the Roswell slides, it might be the Oak Island television show. But sure, we can we can go for that. Well, that's what I was going to say. Let's talk about Oak Island briefly because they had another episode last night or the other night. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. And, uh, I, you know, I've been I've kind of been blogging about this for the last several years and poking fun at them because it's just so absolutely ridiculous. But last night on the preview, they showed them uh, digging their fourth hole in the great money pit area, which I think when they, when they refer to a money pit, they're talking about throwing money into a pit as opposed to taking it out. But they uh, apparently dredged up a gold coin, which supposedly proves that the treasure is there. And I'm thinking that had they actually found money, which would have been last summer, there would have been something probably in the Nova Scotia newspapers or the Nova Scotia area about the find at Oak Island. And since you're in that area, I thought I'd ask, did you, have you ever heard anything about that? No, although um, for a lot of reasons, I don't read the, uh, the kind of local media that that might have been in as much as um, I used to. But no, I don't, I don't recall seeing anything. Fil- um, television production companies can be pretty good at keeping under wraps things that they might find. So, you know, I'm sure everybody involved in the production of Oak Island is under a non-disclosure agreement, um, which takes us back to the Roswell slides. No, just kidding. But, you know, they, which probably has, you know, not insignificant um, ramifications if they were to breach that. So perhaps that was one of those things. 
I mean, I've never watched the show other than five minutes. I tuned in for five minutes once, and that was six minutes longer than I should have. It's it's just not for me. But uh, and I I've never really found the Oak Island in quotation marks mystery to be very mysterious. I've been to Oak Island. It's one of the least mysterious islands you can find in Nova Scotia. And, you know, when you talk to people, it seems like there's been this story, this myth. And Nova Scotia is full of stuff like this. It's on the South Shore, which runs from Halifax down to Yarmouth, which is where you can catch the ferry to Maine. And all along that shore, it's kind of like history and mystery, as as people like to say. And it's it's kind of like Maine with Stephen King. There's a sto- every town has a story. Every house in every town has a story. Every island has a story. There's histories of rum runners and pirates and privateers. And all of that is true. All of that is part of Nova Scotia's history. But as far as I can tell, there's never been any credible evidence or proof offered of some sort of massive treasure on Oak Island. So then it becomes, and I attended a conference last year where they had a, an historian who specializes in Oak Island, and he he didn't talk about the paranormal aspect or really the mystery. He talked more for about an hour and a half about how the story had been created and how it evolved and all the people that had been sucked into the money pit over the years, including Franklin Roosevelt when he was younger, was one of the investors, I think in the 1920s or even, no, it must have been the 1920s before he was president, who had put some money into one of the exploratory efforts on Oak Island. And here's the amazing thing, Kevin, Oak Island isn't that big. So you would have thought that they could have dug the entire island up by now, but apparently they haven't. So the, you know, the mystery of Oak Island is why people are still intrigued by it. It's a, other than, you know, the fact that it's been a pretty good story, pretty well told. But in terms of the television production, it's no mystery at all. You know, they, the rate, I assume they have decent ratings for it in the United States. And, you know, they have funding for it, including, as you posted, the provincial government here has put um, millions of dollars into the production of that television show over the last three or four years. And so somebody's making money off it, even if it's not the treasure hunters themselves. I looked at some of the statistics uh... And it has bumped up over 3 million viewers a couple of times, which I guess for a cable channel is really good. And I remember back in the olden days when we had three networks in the United States that if you got fewer than 35, 40 million viewers, you just weren't doing a very good job of anything. So their 3 million viewers are just, to me, is not that big a deal. But apparently for the cable companies, it is. But what I wondered was if the... um, uh, anybody had thought about the logistics of somebody in the uh, 15th, 16th century of digging a hole that big and booby trapping it that way? Did they have the uh, a capability of doing it? And did they have the um, engineering savvy to do something like that? I never really see that discussed at all. Yeah, I've I've been to lectures. They used to have something, and they might still have it. They used to have something called Oak Island Days, where one day a year or two days you could go down. They had you know pirate parades, and you could go on to the island. It was the only time of the year you could go on to the island. Um, now I don't think you can go on to the island at all. You you can drive up to the causeway, and that's it. You know they won't let you on the island. And um, among that, they would have speakers, and this, some of the speakers that I saw would talk about the history, and they would say, look. What you're talking about, the engineering that would have been involved here is is impossible, that the resources just, you know, pirates didn't have that kind of knowledge to build the sort of thing that you're talking about. Prince Henry Sinclair didn't have that kind of infrastructure and knowledge to build that kind of thing you're talking about. The only people that might have 
would have been royal engineers in the British Army. And even they, come on, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, didn't have the kind of knowledge and engineering know-how that we're talking about to to create what would have to be there now for you to believe that they still haven't been able to find the treasure, given all that they put into it. So, you know, is there something on Oka? I mean, years ago when I was in the provincial government, we funded a documentary about Prince Henry Sinclair. It was called The Prince and the Grail. And the idea that he had brought the Holy Grail over here hundreds of years ago. And I went on an archaeological dig. It was one of the best, it was probably the best set visit I ever had. Although the craft services wasn't as good. So, you know, because I'm an historian by training, nobody else wanted to go on this. I said, I'll go. So it was all the way down, not far from Oak Island, actually. And they were rooting through rubble and, you know, mystery walls and stuff like that. And I found it fascinating. But at the end of the day, they found absolutely nothing. So, you know, people have been looking for this kind of stuff in Nova Scotia for, for centuries now. And there's never been anything really found that would indicate that any of this stuff actually happened. Um, so that's kind of my take on Oak Island. It's good television. It's bad history. Well, let me ask you a question, which uh, back in the olden days, and by that I mean just a couple of years ago, there was a program called, I think, Chasing UFOs on National Geographic. And they went out to Roswell and they're camping out overnight on what would be called the debris field on the old um, Brazel Ranch, uh, Foster Ranch area. And they came up with a button. They found a button which was an Air Force button off a uh, Class A uniform. And I'm thinking, A, the Air Force didn't exist in 1947. B, nobody would have been out there in a Class A uniform to lose a button. Uh, obviously, that was planted there by somebody. And I don't know whether it would have been the production company or somebody else just salt in the area for a great joke or whatever it was. They were excited about this find. And so they teased the other night that they had found a gold coin. Is there possible that uh, somebody in the production company uh, might have planted that out there? Um, just to keep things going or something like that? You're asking a television producer whether it's possible that television producers might um, gild the lily a little bit in order to make more money by making television? Um, the answer is yes. Did they do it? I have no idea. Um, would they? I have no idea. I do know the producers. I don't know whether they would or the people, you know, I, I honestly don't know. Could they? Absolutely. And we can see there was a show in the United States, a ghost hunting show years ago. I think it was called Most Haunted. And they got in trouble for faking stuff. I think it was on the Queen Mary, uh, whatever the one is, the old cruise ship docked in Long Beach, you know, basically faking uh, things within their ghost hunting show. So it, it's clearly gone on in the past with some of these paranormal shows. Um, you know, I've been involved in paranormal shows. In fact, we, we start shooting a new ghost show uh, in about a month. You know, I take great pride in the fact that whatever you see on screen with us actually happened. And I think I've earned that reputation by being um, very outspoken about people who, who maybe do gild the lily a bit. But, you know, it does go on. And did it happen with the Oak Island show? I honestly don't know. Um, but it's possible. Yeah. Well, and I, and I bring that up simply because of the, the button episode on uh, the uh, chasing UFOs, because clearly that button was planted out there. and had, it, it would have been out there since literally 1947, if what we're talking about is true. It showed no signs of weathering. I've got buttons from an uh, Air Force uniform that I had back when I was in the Air Force, and the buttons are tarnished much more than this thing was. It was very pristine, so I immediately knew that it, it was faked. And with all the people who had been out there with metal detectors and all the archaeological site surveys going on, somebody would have found that button long before they came up with it. But so that was just something that stuck in my mind. And I thought that I actually wrote to one of the um, 
fellows that was on the program about that. And of course, I, I don't believe that he or uh, the other two people who were out doing the investigations had a hand in that. But uh, I think he was a little bit disturbed by that button as well. So I mean, it's just something that came to my mind. There's a lot of people involved in a television production. I'm, I think you're probably coming up on your break soon. But, um, you know, I could tell you about when they flew me out to do UFO Hunters in uh, California to talk about Jim McDonald and just sort of the types of questions that they were asking and the way they were doing things. And it just raised the hackles on the back of my neck because that's not how I've tried to, um, you know, I've interviewed you a number of times and I interviewed Carl Flock. I've never, I take great pride in never having had anyone I ever interviewed say their views were misrepresented. They might not like the documentary at the end, but they always felt they were treated fairly, that everybody, you know, Stan, you, Carl, everybody got a fair shake. Even Stephen Greer, I gave him a fair shake by not putting him in my film, which was the kindest thing I could have done for him because he would have looked foolish. You know, and when I look around and I see things like UFO Hunters was not great, Chasing UFOs, that's the show James Fox threatened to kill me on social media. He actually literally threatened to do me bodily harm because I criticized the show. And, you know, it's like, that kind of stuff goes on far too often in television production, unfortunately. Not the death threats, although that happens too. But just reality television is not real. That I, I shouldn't have to say that. To me, that just seems like second nature. But even when you do your best, when you try to make it as real as possible, there's it's television. There's always going to be an element of, oh, that interview, or sorry, not that interview, but that segment where I walk in to meet my co-host for the ghost hunting show, maybe we could do that better. Let's do that again. So as long as you're just doing that stuff, that's fine. It's when you start faking the actual experiences or what you find that you run into real problems. And there's more shows that do that than I think people would care to admit. And the problem is then it creates you know, this entire mindset amongst people where they, they have trouble distinguish, distinguishing reality from unreality. And that's the great irony of reality television. It's it's contributed greatly to the dumbing down of America and Canada and whatever other country it, it, it exists in. And that's, you know, that's not what television should be for. And I sound like something out of a 1950s, you know, commercial for the good that television can do for the public, you know, the public commonwealth or whatever. And uh, but that's not what it's about. It's about making money. Uh, primarily so well, well i know in my own my own personal investigations i often uh, audio record the uh, um, interviews and i don't know how many times i've been accused of misquoting somebody and i've uh, sent them copies the we're going family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pounds. i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. 
Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Copies of the tapes. And here's what you said and here's how you said it. I have not misquoted you. I have not taken it out of context or anything like that. And they would write back and say, well, that's not what I meant or that's not what I said. I said it's you on tape for crying out loud. I know that's what you said. Uh, and that sort of thing. And I also know that I was watching one of these documentaries and Walter Hott was being interviewed. And I don't remember exactly how the sequence was, but I knew that the answer that he gave was not to the question they asked. They had asked a different question to give it a completely different take. So, you know, we had those sorts of problems. I think when we come back, though, we're going to move on to maybe the 10 best UFO sightings because we kind of killed Oak Island and that sort of thing. Uh, and if you want to read all about Oak Island, uh, visit my blog at www.blogspot.com. And as I say, uh, take a look at www.winterlightproductions.com uh, with Paul Kimball. And we will return momentarily, so please stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at... (laughs) 
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. Kimball, my guest today on A Different Perspective. Uh, You can read more about him or learn more about him at www.winterlightproductions.com and www.paulandrewkimball.com. I think I got those out correctly. I think we'd pretty well done away with Oak Island, although I did want to make one other comment that that came out in the program that I found interesting. There was a guy named Ball who uh, owned a great deal of Oak Island back in the 19th century, the late uh, maybe the 17th century, uh, 17th, 18th century, 19th century, 19th century. And the thing that struck me about it was he supposedly was one of the original three guys who had found the treasure and he dropped out of the thing and it became a different three guys. And it was just kind of interesting to me that uh, the history had changed to a different three guys finding the treasure, although Ball had owned part of Oak Island in the uh, mid 19th century. Having said that, I'm going to move on anyway. Uh, when we went away, I threatened to talk to Paul about uh, the 10 best UFO sightings, and he'd done a documentary. Paul, you did a documentary on the 10 best UFO sightings, and I know you've kind of reversed yourself on a couple of those, meaning I think better information has come along. So uh, what did you what did you look at as the 10 best sightings, and where are we today? Well, it was – I'm not so sure – it was me reversing myself only in the sense that I created the list um, by polling folks like you. I think I actually got your top 10 list and Dick Hall's and Stan Freeman's or whatever. And I put them all together. And out of that, I created the top 10 list as sort of voted on by uh, UFO researchers. Uh, With the exception of number 10, I added the 1561 Nuremberg and I put in quotation marks case um, just to show that this had gone on before 1947. That This wasn't, excuse me, something unique to the 20th century. But of all of those cases, you know, that was 2007. 
looking back on it now, 10 years later, you know, there's about two or three of them that I still think are very interesting. The rest of them I find either uninteresting. I might have found a couple of them uninteresting at the time, but I just sort of, you know, it wasn't just me. Or, you know, I think there's been satisfactory explanations or at least doubt cast. The Malmstrom missile base case, for instance, has become very controversial over the last 10 years. And, you know, it's just like a swamp. You don't want to wade into it because the vitriol between the people involved in both criticizing and supporting the case is is so rancorous that you you know you just want to step back and say I don't even want to know what the truth is. It's just well, let, that's, let me, that's a swamp let, I don't want to get involved in. Let me break in just say the Maelstrom case was uh, in 1967 uh, where they thought that an outside force had shut down the missile uh, ten ten of the missiles in one of the missile flights and then a week later it shut down another ten and the, the Air Force was completely and totally baffled by this because if some outside force could disable the missiles from outside then we were vulnerable to a uh, surprise attack and I understand about the problems with that and how there is great arguments between the people who were involved in the first one which was documented but not necessarily UFO related and the second one which was not really documented but is UFO related and I understand how people were um, really at each other's throats on those uh, both both sides of those saying well this did happen this didn't happen and it's become a real bone of contention it was an interesting case and it was an interesting case for one thing and that's because uh, the UFO officer at Maelstrom at the time was a guy named Lewis Chase I think it was yes and and he was the pilot for the RB-47 case, which was another of the really great, uh, at one time, really great UFO sightings. Did, had you made that connection or were you aware of that? Yeah, actually, I interviewed a guy named um, Bruce Bailey who flew RB-47. One of the most fun things about what I used to do, I make feature films now, but as a documentary maker, what I used to do was meeting cool people who'd had cool experiences. So there's this guy named Bruce Bailey. He's a crusty old former RB-47 crew member, highly decorated Air Force crewman um, officer, retired, I think, as a lieutenant colonel like you. And um, he was uh, he was one of the ravens that would work in the belly of the RB-47, manning the electronic warfare and counterintelligence gear and all that sort of stuff. So highly, you know, highly qualified, competent, high security clearance, all that sort of stuff. So I went down. Brad Sparks had connected with him somehow and said, Paul, you should go interview this guy. None of the original members from the 1957 case are still alive, but Bailey knew them. And uh, you should talk to him because he's sort of written the book literally about the history of the RB 47. So I went down, very nice guy, still alive, um, still connected to him on Facebook. And he's still writing about the RB 47, some really great stories. And so I, I interviewed him about the 1957, the classic RB-47 case, and I talked to him about some of the crew members he knew, and he said, yeah, salt of the earth, these were the best of the best, blah, a couple of them had even trained me, blah, blah, blah. Great. Thought the interview was over. I was going to ask him for a good steak restaurant in Texas where he lives, and then he, you know, the camera was still rolling. He said, yeah, and I had my own uh, UFO experience um, a few years later, and I went, what now? And so he said, yeah. And I said, well, can I interview you about that? And he said, sure. Didn't even think twice about it. So he told me this story. They were flying um, common cause missions over Cuba in and around the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they had basically had more or less the similar thing happen to them as had been reported in the 1957 case. And so my one of my favorite moments of any UFO documentary is when I interviewed him. And I sort of there's silence for a couple of seconds. And I said, so. 
what do you think it was? And he just looked at me and said, it was a damn UFO. What do you think it was? <laughs> and, you know, I went, I, I don't know. And he said, I still, you know, he said, I still don't know. All these years later, it was just we got back to the base. We were immediately ordered not to talk about it. We were told basically that if you did talk about it, even to your wife or your friends, it was the quickest way to find yourself posted to northern Alaska kind of thing, you know. And he said, so we just didn't talk about it. And I, I said, well, I, you know, I kind of find that hard to believe that you wouldn't talk about it. And he said, you've never been under security clearance, have you, son? And I went, well, not the kind you were under. You know, I worked briefly for the RCMP. It was a pretty minimal security clearance. He said, yeah, not the same thing. They tell you not to talk. You don't talk. And I went, yes, sir. I, I understand better. And he said, are you sure you're understanding me? I went, yeah, yeah, I get it. I thought he was going to swear me to secrecy right there. But, you know, that's one of those things where you talk to somebody about one particular case. And then all of a sudden, you know, you realize that there's more to the story because they have their own story. And I've experienced the same thing talking to folks about the Shag Harbor case, for instance. I know you had Don Ledger on your show last week. And I know Don's experienced that, too. I've been out to lunch with Don. And we've been sitting in a restaurant here in Halifax. And you would think people would come up to me. I mean, I don't have an ego, but I'm the filmmaker. Usually it's an actor or somebody coming up and saying, hey, can I be in your film or whatever. I saw you on TV, ghosty, ghosty Paul. Nope. They came up to Don. They knew Don. And they said, listen, you're the guy who wrote the UFO book about Shag Harbor, right? And Don went, yep. And I thought, right, I'm the least important person sitting at this table right now. Great. And they had a story. They said, look, I have my own UFO story. Can I tell you about it? And before Don could say yes, the guy had pulled up a chair and sat down at our table. And I went, well, OK, cool. Let's let's just roll with this. And, you know, it took about 15 minutes. And he told this story. And it was a pretty good story. And Don said, look, here's my number. I'm having lunch right now. But give me a call and I'd be happy to look into this for you. So, you know, I've experienced that myself. I've been at family functions one of my favorite one of my favorite UFO cases, which is not in the top ten, is one that um, me and maybe ten other people know about. Happened in Prince Edward Island in the 1960s. I was uh, at an in-laws house, and you know, just sitting around in Prince Edward Island, shooting the breeze, as it were. And suddenly, um, this sort of forty-something-year-old cousin of my fiance said, "By the way, you make films about UFOs, right?" "I do." Uh, well, I have a story to tell you. And his mother was sitting right there and he turned to his mother and said, you remember this, right? And she just shook her head. She immediately knew what he was going to talk about. And it was this story. They saw an egg-shaped silver cylindrical object in the 1960s. The year escapes me right now. And they were just sitting on their back porch of their farm. And uh, their father was a civil servant. I mean, these people were educated people. And uh, they said, we were there. And this thing came down, floated above the ground, and then took off again. I went, you're kidding, right? I thought they were pulling my leg. Hey, new guy in the family. Ha, ha, ha. Nope, deadly serious. And the mother, uh, she's passed away now, she thought it was a forerunner, which is a term here in the maritime provinces for you know, sort of a supernatural, paranormal thing that warns you of impending doom or some bad happening is going to happen. Somebody in the family is going to die, whatever. And uh, the day after, somebody they knew was killed in a car accident not far from there. So she filtered it through this prism of the supernatural, that this was a warning from the great beyond that something bad was going to happen. Her son filtered it through the prism of, you make UFO films, I want to talk to you about space aliens. And uh, and so that was an interesting conversation, too, that two people who had seen the exact seen the exact same thing looked at it in different ways and took different things because they were from different generations out of it. So every time, you know, I still run across people like that. Uh, I was speaking at the Shag Harbor 
um, UFO conference in October. And, uh, you know, I had more than one person in the Q and a afterwards. And, the, and I prefer this actually, they wanted, you know, I expect to be asked questions. Instead, they wanted to tell me stories. And I said, great, happy to shut up, let you do all the work. And frankly, your stories are probably more interesting than any answers I could give you to any question. So, you know, I just basically sat there and listened. And one guy said, I saw the Shag Harbor thing. And here's what I saw. Great. I don't think anyone's heard that story. You should connect with this Chris Stiles. He's right over there. And, you know, somebody else said, well, I had a similar story a few years later and that kind of thing. So that's, you know, I'm sure that's what's probably driven you over all these years. It's why, despite all the disappointments, all the cases that have been proved, all the my own skepticism, and I'm still, you know, I'm not an ETH supporter. I still look at the UFO phenomenon and I find it interesting because when I hear stories like this from credible people, people I know telling me these experiences that they've had um, and including some of my own experiences in the ghost hunting world over the years, once I get into that, you sort of realize there's more to heaven and earth than in all your philosophy kind of thing. So you keep an open mind, even as you might say, well, maybe the Malmstrom missile base case is not as good a case as people thought it was. Or maybe the McMinnville case was a hoax. But hey, by the way, the Tehran case from 1976 in Iran with the Iranian jet fighters, that still seems to be like a pretty good case. I still haven't heard a valid explanation for that one that satisfies me. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that uh, that keeps you going, even as maybe you push cases that you might have thought were better aside as new evidence comes up. Well, it's interesting because I was about to ask you, what do you think of some of the – what do you think of the top 10 cases that you looked at are, are still valid? And you kind of put that into your answer there uh, about that. The Tehran case we've talked about in the past and when I say we here on the program and there was stuff on the blog about it as well to give more information about it. That's always quite good. Mm-hmm. But what I find interesting is the idea that you know this – Sighting uh, leads to another sighting to another sighting, um, and you are not a fan of the extraterrestrial. Do you have uh, a, a working theory? What do you think is going on? And we have just a, a couple of seconds here before we have to take a break, so make it quick. <laughs> sure, I I don't rule out the extraterrestrial. I just think, from what I've seen, I haven't seen any evidence that shows me that that's that that's the case. But I keep an open mind. But I do think there's a possibility. And we can maybe talk about this after the break because it goes beyond just looking at UFOs. It goes on into my study of studies of religion over the year, years as a graduate student and all sorts of stuff that we may be. It's the Jacques Vallée school. We may be interacting with a non-human intelligence, call it God, call it space aliens, whatever, that presents itself to us in different guises over different periods of time throughout human history. But it's basically the same entity. I don't I don't put that forward as something I know is true. But I do put it forward as something that seems to make sense to me as a non-prosaic explanation for things that I can't find a non can't find a prosaic explanation for. Okay, we'll come back here in just a few minutes with Paul Kimball. At uh, you can look at him at www.winterlightproductions.com and take a look at uh, my blog at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And when we come back, we'll explore this a little bit further with Paul Kimball. So stick around. Oh, 
This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? I'm Dr. Kimberly McGeorge, and on The Secret to Everything, we will merge the practical with open investigation into all realms of the mysterious. We will talk to cutting-edge alternative health practitioners, those who inspire and motivate you in business and life, and of course, we will share stories of the paranormal, conspiracy, and cryptozoology. You will transform because of the frequency I carry, the frequencies my guests carry. Life may never be the same after you listen to this program. For the secret to everything is for you, the listener. For those who desire more in every area of their lives and believe that it can still be found. Listen and discover thesecrettoeverything.com. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, 
than 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an eight-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. As promised, we are back with Paul Kimball talking about, uh, I guess, uh, UFOs and the paranormal. Paranormal was a word I was casting about for, which for some reason... Didn't come to my mind right away. Before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about what his theories were, your theories are, about what is what is happening here. But I wanted to go back to one other thing, which we really hadn't touched on, because we had this, um, or you made this this documentary about the best UFO cases. Mm-hmm. What are some of those that you still consider to be really, really good? And we talked a little bit about Tehran, and I didn't mention that people can read about that on the blog. But what are some of those that, that you saw at that time that you think are still good? Are still mysterious. Shag Harbor. Um, I'm a big fan of the Shag Harbor case. Still don't know if it's extraterrestrial or not. Um, but I've talked to enough people. And it's maybe it's like you and Roswell. When you get to know the people involved and you, you sort of live in that area, in my case, um, maybe it becomes a little more resonant with you. But in the case of Shag Harbor, people often, is, you know, there's a whole bunch of moving parts. And I know, I think with Don, you talked about the two parts. There's clearly something that happened. There's no question that something happened, that people saw this object in the sky. It went into the harbor. Nobody disputes that. There's police reports on that, all sorts of stuff like that. That's the first part of the case, which is generally non-controversial, even if you don't know what it is. Then there's the second part of the case, which Don talks about, which is all this stuff about a cover-up and an underwater search operation and all that. That's much more controversial. I don't go that far because I've never actually seen any proof of that. I prefer to stick with what I can prove, what I know happened. But for me, the interesting thing is there's a third part to the case, which isn't talked about a whole lot. And that is Shag Harbor is about two and a half hours from Halifax, if you were to drive there. Um, I don't know how many miles that is, probably 150 miles maybe. And so it's, you know, it's not something you can get to from Halifax like that. Just boom, there you are. That same night in Halifax, Chris Stiles talks about this. He had a sighting. He encountered some strange, mysterious object when he was a young child. So did, and I've written about this, my business partner, my producing partner, Ron Foley McDonald, who's 10 years older than me, uh, seven years, sorry, Ron, seven years older than me. You know, Ron had a similar experience. Chris saw something. Ron, for him, it was a kid. He and these kids in his neighborhood uh, called Fairview here in Halifax heard something, this really loud noise that they'd never heard before that he says he was so scared. He climbed under the car. And all these years later, 50 years later, he said he still remembers it like it was yesterday. So, you know, there and there were reports of these things that had been seen over Halifax. So there's really a third element to it as well, which is that this was a, a series of moving events that began in the Halifax area, which is the capital of Nova Scotia, and then moved down along the ocean shore, what we call the South Shore, to eventually this community at the sort of end of the province of Nova Scotia, which is a peninsula called Shag Harbor and the surrounding communities as well. 
And that to me, you know, provides a lot of moving parts. There's good witnesses. I've talked to the witnesses like Lori Wickens, people who are still alive, who were adults. Lori was the witness who first called the RCMP that night. Um, he and a car full of friends had seen this object. So, you know, you start to get this picture of something truly mysterious and weird that these folks all saw or heard in different places at different times that night. And then that, you know, pieces together to be something that I think is still unexplained. And the Canadian government still considers it unexplained. 50 years later, they still, when they refer to it at all, still refer to it as they did back then in official documents as a UFO. So I, I still think that's a great case. I still find the Kelly Johnson sighting in Santa Barbara uh, in 1950 to be interesting and not completely, not I shouldn't say not completely disproven, not disproven. It's still, to me, a case that is of interest, particularly given that Johnson had you know more than one sighting. And he's the kind of guy who should have known what was in the skies because he was designing the most advanced planes that anybody was flying at that time. So I think, we should, I think we should point out that Kelly Johnson worked at the Skunk Works, which was right. a place where they're developing the next generations of military aircraft and the SR-71, which to me looks very alien when, when you think this is 1950s technology. So that this is a guy, if you if you wanted to point to somebody who says, do you know what's going on in the sky around you? He would be the guy you'd point to. Yes, absolutely. You know, that he would be the epitome of a credible witness. Still doesn't mean that he saw space aliens or even anything that wasn't prosaic. We don't know. But it wasn't just him. It was also one of his top test crews. Um, somebody criticized me in the documentary. Uh, a critic said, you refer to it in the documentary, documentary as they triangulated when there were only two of them. And I went, fine, they do angulate it, whatever the term of that is. But, you know, Kelly Johnson was looking at this object through binoculars from his home in Agora, California, which is near the ocean, at the same time as his top flight engineers and test pilots, unbeknownst to him, were shaking a plane down going along the coast, and they sighted it as well. And it was only the next day when they both showed up at work, or the groups of them showed up at work, and they were all talking about it, that they realized they had seen the same thing. And so they filed reports uh, with Project Blue Book and all that sort of stuff. Still unexplained as far as I'm concerned. Still a very interesting case. So there's three. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of the rest of them. Um, RB47, credit where credit is due. I challenge Tim Printy, who does the, um, what does he call it? Sunlight. Sun, old... Sunlight, which yeah. is kind of a tribute to uh, uh, Phil Class's uh, uh, UFO newsletter that yes. he had out. And so Tim does this UFO zine on the Internet once every two months, I think. And so I, I challenged him. He was bashing Roswell on a regular basis. I think he even had a Kevin Randall column or something where he would you know, talk about what you were talking about. And I said, look, bashing Roswell's easy, Tim. I got this film with these 10 great cases in them. Why don't you have a go at one of those? In fact, why don't you have a go at the best one, the RB47 case from 1957? And we had a bit of a back and forth, and he said, "Look, if I take that one down, you'll just find another one." I said, "No, if you if you offer, you know, a, a real investigation for this, you know, that's that's a good thing." And so he did. He he devoted an entire, I think it's forty five, fifty pages issue of his zine to this one thing, and that's all that an advocate for the UFO phenomenon could ask for is that the skeptics take a deep, hard look at it and they give it their best explanation, and. I took a look at it. I'm, look, I'm the first person to admit I'm not an expert when it comes to, you know, things like flight patterns and all that sort of stuff. You know, I don't fly planes. Uh, Printy took a pretty good look at it. And I think he came up 
And don't ask me what it was, because I can't remember now off the top of my head. But he came up with an explanation that people should at least read. And read with an open mind the same way that skeptics should look at UFO cases with an open mind. And then say, okay, well, does this get us to where we need to be to sort of maybe put the RB47 case aside and say, yep, that one's been explained. Or at the very least, maybe it's not as interesting now. You know, there's a credible counter argument out there for it. So kudos to Tim Printy for stepping up to do that when many skeptics don't. So, um, you know, that that that's one that still interests me, but maybe not as much as it used to. Uh, the rest of them, you know, Rendlesham, I've never been a big fan of Rendlesham. Uh, again, one of those convoluted cases that is, you know, hard to sort of really wrap your mind around. And the stuff that's gone on with Larry Warren is very problematic. And, you know, people seem, you know, the, what is it? The Burroughs and Penniston came up with their weird alien writing years after the fact or zero, the binary code. So any time that you see a case where the story seems to get better as the years go along, I, I get a little leery of that, which is why I like Shag Harbor, because the core Shag story is still pretty much what it was 50 years ago. It hasn't changed a whole lot. And well, let me let me break in that's here. That's a good thing. It, it allows me to this allows me to uh, promote next week's program, which will be Colonel Charles Halt, which is the first time I've had a guest back, and we're going to talk specifically about Larry Warren and Left at East Gate, which was his book with Peter Robbins, and we'll see if we can't hash through some of that some of that material. So you allow me to promote the next week's program in that in that sense. Um, but I'm all about I, the segues. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and thank you very much for that. The um, there are there, you know, I I know John Burroughs I know Jim Pettiston um, I know Burroughs better than I know Pettiston, but I you know, there there are things that are problematic about that case and we'll we'll hash that out next week with with Halt. Uh, right. We just have a, a very short time here left. Is there anything that you'd like to mention before we go away? Sure, you know I actually find ghost investigating to be not just because I get paid to do it for to host a television show now, but having looked both at the ghost thing and both at the, and the UFO thing, I actually find the ghost thing much more interesting because for the most part, it's more personal. And that sort of is what got me when I did the first ghost show seven or eight, what was it? Eight years ago, I guess now, and had some of my own experiences. I became a, a lot more understanding of the experiences that people in the UFO world would be telling me about and more sympathetic, even if I didn't necessarily believe them, I was more sympathetic to their experience or believe it was alien rather. But B, I started to see that maybe there was some sort of commonality between all of these stories of strange things. And it's Greg Bishop, who you should have on your show, is a guy who's been talking about stuff like that for years. And Mac Tony's used to talk about that too. I ask you to have him on his show, but sadly passed away in 2009. Um, you know, th those were the guys that, I was attracted to the thinkers that I was attracted to who would say, look, it doesn't have to be space aliens. Maybe, and maybe there's something here in the UFO stories that is similar to ghost stories that is similar perhaps to other stories of the paranormal experience, including, you know, religion. Uh, you, you guys swear your president in on a Bible. Um, you know, you're a very religious country. There are still a lot of religious people on the on the planet. I don't see why the paranormal is that much different from people who believe that a guy could walk on water, raise the dead, and uh, and was the son of God, born of a virgin birth. I mean, that's about as paranormal as you're going to get. So to me, I kind of now look at it as all part of one kind of picture together. 
And that's taken me away from the extraterrestrial and closer towards looking at it as a as a sort of cohesive supernatural or paranormal story. And to me, that that's actually a bit more interesting. I don't know if it's true, but it's more interesting. Paul, we've run out of time. Uh, that can't happens thank when I talk. Yeah, I can't can't thank you enough for uh, joining us here on a different perspective. And I think we'll have you back at some point in the future. Uh, if you want more, take a look at www.winterlightproductions.com and www.paulandrewkimball.com. Paul, thank you very much. For those of you who'd like more information about some of the things we've talked about, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and listen for the other great shows on the X-Zone uh, Broadcast Network. That's xzbn.net. We will be back next week with uh, Charles Halt talking about uh, Wendelsum Forest. Thank you.